Malcolm Holmline is in Israel, which always makes this segment even more exciting. He is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you all the time, but most especially from your shrine. Yeah, it is amazing. Just being connected with you in this way makes the listeners and all of us here much, much happier, that's for sure. And we wish you a very and uh, wonderful upcoming holiday of Sukkot. I, 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 what can I tell you? The, uh, the, finally, it seems, finally, it seems that the Israeli police and the Israeli security and the Israeli military is ready. And maybe they finally have been given permission uh, to be ready to do this. They have uh, finally decided to crack down on the rocks, firebombs, and fireworks that are being fired at Israeli citizens. What seems now on a much more regular basis. You're there now. You, I'm sure you've spoken to a lot of people. What can you tell us about the basic protection of the citizens that has been in high demand over the last few months in Israel? Well, I think that there are a, a number of factors. Uh, first of all, I think it has been tolerated too long. As you know, we have um, complained many times about the situation in Harazetim, and there were improvements made, but the situation is still intolerable that people can't go and visit their loved ones who are interred there. And now we see it spread again to uh, Harabayit, uh, to Al-Aqsa, as they call it, and keep saying that Al-Aqsa is endangered. Uh, I think the actions of the international community, UNESCO and others, um, where they identify the site as only holy to Muslims, denying Jews, but well, as well Christians, any uh, connection and denying and denigrating, diminishing our, our much longer connection, and the fact that this is the holiest site to Jews, is the third holiest site to, to Muslims, and that Muslims have a much more protected position than Jews in coming in terms of being able to go up there to pray or to, to even to visit. And this this is used by the Palestinian Authority because it's Abbas himself who engages in the incitement. He sent the messages that Al-Aqsa is on, under siege in, on the Internet, arouses the other Arab leaders who come under pressure then from their citizens, including the reportedly King of Jordan, who uh, they say is reluctant to talk to Netanyahu because of it, and he calls on him to address the violence on, mm-hmm. on Arbaid, when the violence is instigated by the Palestinians against the Jews, and that they are they are given a privileged position. And the, the attempt to deny us our past, to deny us our future, is very clear. Yeah. And it's, it's no different than what ISIS does in destroying all of the ancient holy sites they want to, to destroy, and they're willing to destroy the sites in order to to deny us. And, and just one point, you, you remember when Arafat did a lot of damage on Harabai to build the extension and stuff, and, and the, the dirt was taken to uh, Emeturim to, to go through, and they're still going through, and they say, we'll take many more years. But yes, this week, a young 10-year-old Russian child found, a in the, as he was helping to sift the, the, uh, the dirt, they found something from the time of David and King David, a seal with important inscriptions. This is all in stuff that, that he, in desecrating the Temple Mount, uh, and in order to expand the mosque at, uh, in Solomon's stables, um, uh, in fact uncovered so many of these secrets. Yeah, and uh, how sad it was that... Uh 
I wouldn't say complicity, but there was uh, unfortunately not too much opposition at that time from the Israeli government. But anyway, uh, you mentioned the holy sites, and obviously they're so important, and we know about those episodes. But even more so, the drive-by shootings that people fear and the rock-throwing on the roads that, God forbid, can, as we've seen very recently, can kill people. And and I, you know, I has, we mentioned last week whether we use the word or the term intifada or not, there's just a... An air of, I don't want to say fear, but it, but but until this point, until this commitment by Israeli security officials to make things more secure, there was an atmosphere that uh, that things were just not safe. I hope, I hope this new commitment really changes this and, and takes us in a totally different direction. Well, uh, we hope so as well. We hope that they hold parents accountable. We hope that they will take uh, more steps. But I think it's a mistake to call it rock-throwing, um, not in your part, but in general, when the media and when the Israelis use the term. These are boulders. There are people standing, uh, standing on the side of highways, an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, an adult, and they hold boulders that they throw through a windshield. And some people die of heart attacks, not just from the accident, or the cars roll over, other things. You know, there were 5,000 cases of, of throwing in, 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 in 2015. 14 people have been killed in recent decades, not now, but over the decades. So it is deadly. It is. It has to be taken seriously and has to be addressed in a serious way. And if you don't, then it just continues to, to e- escalate because they see that they can get away with it. Yeah, no question. All right, BB met with Putin, one of the Times of Israel uh, um, uh, journalists, writers, wrote, when Bibi spent the full two and a half hours this week in the company of Russian leader Vladimir Putin, no doubt most of the time was indeed dedicated to figuring out how to prevent Israel and Russia from accidentally shooting at each other in Syria. Is that simplifying things too much? No, I think that that was a primary purpose, that uh, there is a common identity in terms of what uh, they want in Syria, meaning to avoid a conflict between Israel and and Russia, and it, it's worth a minute to look at how far Russia has expanded its presence in Latakia, where they long had a naval base, but expanding their military bases, the military facilities, flying in uh, aircraft. They now have 28 planes. These are, are jet fighter planes that are stationed uh, in, in, the, in this Air Force safe. They are working with the Iran, with the uh, government of Syria, but his his purpose is, is uh, several fold. One, he wants to stick it to the U.S. Two, he wants to protect his interests in Syria, I would make that one. Uh, and that included keeping Assad in power. And if you've seen the French this week said, who have long called for Assad's removal, uh, that they want to, that they're willing to let him stay. What's also interesting is that France has started bombing in Syria because they got warnings from ISIS that ISIS was going to carry out raids on Syrian territory, on the French territory, and this is a preemptive move on, on France's part to try and, and prevent it. But the, the, the meeting also dealt, I think, with uh, the situations regarding Palestinians, the upcoming UN session where Putin is supposed to uh, come briefly. And you know that the Hezbollah acquired and used Russian anti-tank missiles since 2006, so for about 10 years. And they and Israel has hit convoys moving weapons uh, from Syria to Lebanon, pro- provided by Iran. 
and they want to ensure that Russian aircraft don't enter it, don't try to cover for them, and that Israeli planes coming to take out such shipments are not going to end up in an encounter with a Russian plane. So I think this new term, deconflict, to avoid misunderstandings and clashes, uh, has become the, the word de jour. Uh, it was a word that Ash Carter used when he met with his uh, Russian counterpart as well. And the, you know, he, the, pres- the Prime Minister made clear that the U.S.-Israel relationship is of foremost importance, I think was the term he used, because he doesn't want people to exploit and say, well, they're supplanting the U.S. with, with Russia. He's coming to meet the president November 9th. That is, Netanyahu is meeting the president in Washington November 9th. And I think we will see um, his remarks next week at the United Nations, also um, following the same lines as he has dealing with Iran, as is, is so necessary. And Iran is, is central to this, because the Iran Revolutionary Guard are in the Golan, yeah. and for all the years that Assad was in power, he kept the Syrian border quiet, and he used to fight across the Lebanese border. Now, with, the, with Hezbollah in, in not wanting to see its missile taken out or its attack, and the Iranians don't want to because its major um, defense against an Israeli attack is the threat that they would activate the 100,000 missiles in, in Hezbollah's hands. So they're now moving to heat up the Syrian border as the place where exchanges uh, take place. And Israel said they're not going to tolerate armament that Iran is, is sending it against them. They're not going to allow it to get to the hands of Hezbollah. Uh, and, and I think that that was the basis of the discussions, and from what the reports indicated, they were successful. So, uh, two things. First of all, for those who are now fearing, uh, oh my gosh, an Iranian-Israeli war, uh, let's remember there is already an Iranian-Israeli war. You've pointed this out a million times, the the, the proxy war being fought uh, by Iran through Hezbollah and other terror groups can certainly be considered an Iranian-Israeli war at this point, right? Absolutely. The other thing... Absolutely, and it's a good point, because... You know, people forget when they read the story, so they remember it for a few minutes. But the fact is that Hamas and Hezbollah are Iran surrogates. Hezbollah gets the weapons and the funding from Iran. And with the additional funding, it's one of our major uh, concerns. And we know that suitcases of money went to Hamas in recent weeks and months. We know that uh, there are Russian soldiers who are refusing to support, to, to serve in Syria and are rebelling against the assignment. So we know that the Russians are coming in there. The Iranians are there. Others are coming in now. We don't know to what degree America will now get involved because they're talking about a greater involvement as well. It is a very complicated and dangerous situation. But I think that Israel is actually in a very good position in, in this time. And I doubt that Iran wants to have the heat of conflict either from Syria or Lebanon with Israel. Boy, that's uh, that's chilling when you when you publicly say Israel's in a good position. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, sometimes I hesitate to even think that. The other thing is, what does it say about the Israeli military? What does it say about Israeli presence in the Middle East that Putin, to this degree has to make sure that Israel is, quote-unquote, at bay. I know that, again, I know he's taking all precautions because of the advancements he wants to make in Syria and the support he wants to have for the Assad regime. But just the fact that he's this, I don't know, scared or respectful of what Israel can do is pretty amazing. 
while I don't think he's scared particularly about what Israel could do, um, you know, Putin represents, uh, does not represent a superpower anymore. It is obviously a world power, but its economy is strong. He is ex- overextended because he can't carry on uh, the situation in Ukraine and Crimea as it is and deploy so many so much manpower to Syria. So he has to draw down people from Ukraine to go to, to Syria. Also, he, he plays on the weakness of the West, as do the others. They see that the West doesn't stand up to them, that he can get away with it. Everybody tisks about it afterwards, but he just he does it. He did it in Ukraine, in Crimea, and the world, you know, yeah, for a few minutes, they scream about it, yeah. and nobody's willing to stand up to him on it. And he's taking advantage of that. He sees that the, the West is weak, and he plays that weakness. He, this is their only forward base of its kind in the Mediterranean. So for him, it has great symbolic importance, even if less uh, military importance. If we uh, don't use the if we don't use the word superpower anymore, can we at least say regional power? Do they still uh, maintain that status? Still a power. Certainly, it's a power, right. and it's uh, you know it's an important country. has a big military, but he has his own problems with his military because forty percent of his conscripts are are Muslims today, and the officer corps will be a majority Muslim within a few years. And the the concern certainly has is, is about the uh, radicalization of the Muslim populations in Russia. So he, he has his own concerns about um, the ramifications of this. Second, he is showing the world, and, and I hear it from leaders, they say, look, Putin is a man of his word. He stands by his friends. That he, they see him going in and doing all of this for Putin or um, Assad. They're saying, well, he's a guy we can rely on. And they feel that they can't rely on the West. The West too often, you know, will yeah. demand human rights issues, other issues, sure. which are important. Mm-hmm. But don't understand the circumstances of each of the particular countries. Malcolm Holmline is in Jerusalem. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM dial. Broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmnam.org. We have a few minutes left. Uh, we're going to make room for both the Rayudin and some Holomoid events that are coming up. This is our final jam in the AM before Yuntif, of course. Uh, well, Malcolm did the smart thing. Everyone's wondering how to beat the UN weak traffic. He flew 6,000 miles away. That's how he beat the UN weak traffic over here. But, of course, everyone's concerned, Malcolm, about what's happening inside the United Nations this week. What could you tell us, not just about the uh, the fact that Netanyahu is speaking next week, which is something that we all look forward to, of course. Most people, I think, will, uh, in this audience at least, uh, will certainly appreciate his message. But in terms of the uh, movement of the PA and uh, countries not very friendly to Israel, what can we expect in the upcoming days? Well, I think that uh, we saw the beginning signals with the raising of the Palestinian flag, some of the other resolutions that we hear being muted. I think that uh, it's going to be, we, we will hear some rhetoric we won't like, and Netanyahu will speak on on um, Wednesday of Halamai, on, on Thursday, October 1st, Thursday. Um, I think he'll have an important message about Iran, about other issues, and maybe about Palestinian peace. Everybody's watching what Abbas will say, because he's saying that He's going to make an important announcement at the end of the speech. Some thought he would resign. Some thought he would end the uh, agreements, um, the past agreements. Others have saying saying other things. The Oslo Accords included. Yeah. Uh, so it's not clear what he's going to do. He will certainly take advantage of it, and I'm very much concerned. And we are working about the introduction of a resolution that tries to impose or promote uh, a peace process, um, not. 
directly geared to the parties themselves doing it, but the outside parties uh, taking. And that battle's been fought before at the UN many times, right? Every year, and to get away from that traffic, I will go to Mars. <laughs> it's so terrible because we also have the Pope today, tomorrow, but then the president coming on Monday always freezes the city. Every I am relegated to public transportation today, and you're complaining to me from Jerusalem? <laughs> I'm not complaining. I'm describing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, believe me. Uh, and by the way, I went to the old city. We were at the hotel for a long time today. We went to visit some of the new sites at the tunnels and amazing new sites at the city of David that will blow people away, literally blow them away. Both the Ir David and Minerota Kotel, the tunnels of the Kotel are just amazing. I mean, really, people, and it is totally quiet. You walk without fear, so people shouldn't be afraid to come. You can walk the streets, you walk around to, to buy it. There are Jews of all kinds here floating around, people of all kinds uh, joining them. So nobody should hesitate to, to come. Yeah, well, no question about it. And I, I'm, I hope that you'll see a lot of people there next week. It's probably one of the biggest tourist weeks of the year, holiday of Sukkot, and hopefully there'll be plenty of people there. Do you have any clue what percentage of the Israeli public would be for a military strike against Iran if necessary? And the reason I ask that is I wonder, as this buildup continues on the Syrian border and Iran is exposed for being responsible for that buildup, if that at all helps with public support for what might be an eventual attack from Israel? There is broad support for Israel to do what it has to do. There is broad support and understanding, uh, I would say, for Netanyahu's position and his uh, actions. And uh, they don't see, except for some of the more extreme journalists, um, as, as a failure. And I think it's very important, and for your listeners especially, to know this was not a failure. The, the outcome of the vote in the, in the Senate and the House, there was no vote. The, the, if it had been one, it would have been 58-42 in the Senate. Right. And a similar majority in the House. So this never passed this raised question of it's even binding on future presidents, but the fact that he didn't bring it to vote, that he did the closure rule that being imposed and the attempt to override, et cetera, which enabled them to, to carry this with a much smaller uh, vote. So mm. I think people not seeing that Danielle is humiliated by the outcome. I think they see him strengthened and, and urging him to continue. Uh, and we are urging people to understand, and we issued a statement this week signed by 51 of our national member organizations, a statement of Jewish unity, where even those on different sides of the issue on Iran came together, acknowledged we have to work together to make sure Iran does not become a nuclear power that unites us all at the uh, concerns and uh, of those who were opposed to it, as well as those who may have supported it, the best alternative have very limited number of alternatives, uh, also had responsibilities uh, and to make our voices heard on an ongoing basis. I think to the attacks on Iraq, the attacks on the Jewish the descriptions and all that, this is an attempt to diminish and divide us. We should not fall victim to it. This was not a defeat for the Jewish community. This was not a Jewish issue. It was an American issue. The American people in many polls were as much as 80 to 20 percent, but all, certainly at least two to one in every poll against the deal. And uh, as I said, the majority of both houses would have ca- carried against the yeah. deal. I hope, so, I, I hope people, people understand. will not be dissuaded. Yeah. I hope people understand how important a message this is. Uh, it, you've made this point the last couple of weeks. It, it's really appropriate 
Shabbos table discussion, this topic of Jewish unity exactly. and moving forward. It's really appropriate, and I hope people uh, use the opportunity to speak to every generation about it because it is such a they vital try component. To read this statement. If you could, they, tell, they should read the statement. But what you're saying is right. People have to talk about it because everybody talks about the Machlaikas, and this is an effort to hurt us. It, it's not people who are concerned about divisions in the community. They want to sow the divisions. They want to exploit it. Even can come from high sources sometimes. And we have to make sure that we not allow that to happen because that's the greatest danger to us. By the way, Malcolm, last point. Do you know that uh, the king of Swaziland, I'm not joking, this is totally serious, requested to be interviewed by me. It was supposed to be yesterday afternoon. It didn't work out. You know, he's here for the U.N. session, etc. And the reason was he wants to continue spreading the message that Swaziland continues to stand with Israel and communicate this message to the Jewish world. Pretty amazing, huh? It is. I hope he would vote, will vote and start his people to vote the right way in the United Nations. But many countries in Africa, and as you know, we send the governors of the banks of Africa, we send people from there, they all come back and say, just give us Israel, keep the U.N., keep mm-hmm. U.S. It's Israel, they have post-harvest reclamation, water reclamation, you know, dealing with drought, dealing with all sorts of things, all the high-tech, and so alone away with Israel. Yeah, no Unfortunately, question. the United Nations, they vote as a block, right. but he and other leaders, and we have during this week many, many meetings with leaders who seek out the Jewish community because they want to have a relationship uh, with the American Jewish community. All right, if we do this next week on Cholamoid, we got to use a landline. I apologize to the listeners for some of the uh, breaking up. I wish you a wonderful Shabbos and a great Yontav, Malcolm, and hopefully we will, in fact, get together Cholamoid on Friday. We'll see you next Thanks so much. A good Shabbos and a wonderful Chag. Malcolm Honline. Live from Jerusalem, which always makes this segment extra, extra special. He is Executive Vice Chairman, Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the weekly update here at JM in the AM.